0: Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with
1: us. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Magnified, the podcast interview series that I conduct at my kitchen table, and it is produced in association with Strategic Power Connect. What I try to do is find interesting people with interesting life stories to tell, or ambitions still to be fulfilled, or interesting topics with which they engage, and chat to them in a more discursive format than my radio show The Last Word allows for. So... Our guest today has had an extraordinarily varied career over his last 35 years or so in business. Lots of ups and downs along the way. He is emerging from bankruptcy, has emerged from bankruptcy, and is trying again. He has a major new venture in Drumcondra in Dublin, which you'll hear him talking about. He has also been disqualified as a company director, something which will come to an end this year, which allows him to go back in that particular vein again if possible but he's lots of interesting views about nightlife and entertainment and the role of the pub and the restaurant in Irish society and has a big interest in economics as well which partly comes from having shared rooms in Trinity with Dave McWilliams when they were both studying together so I hope you enjoyed Jay Burke and again our thanks to Strategic Power Connect for being our partner on this podcast. Jay Burke, thank you very much for taking the time to join me here at my kitchen table. Uh, you're an incredible man for bouncing back. And I want to talk to you a little while about bankruptcy and how that impacted on you. But I want to start by asking you about your new venture. Because we want to start on a positive front foot and tell us about what you're going to do with Quinn's in Drumcondra.
0: Well, Quinn's is uh, it's a big a pub on the north side near Crow Park and it's very famous uh, for, uh, I guess, hosting fans of GAA and it's probably the most prominent pub in Ireland for that and known the, the length and breadth of the country and, and known abroad actually. It's a really quite famous place. It was of course owned by Sean Quinn and was, he had about 10 pubs in Dublin and it was his favourite. He said, I love this pub and uh, it was put in receivership. Sorry, were you ever in it? No, I'm, I'm I'm an unlikely uh, owner of a GAA pub because I grew up uh, playing hockey and rugby. And uh, when I grew up in Doki with my own family, we we played hockey on the streets. And now, of course, not many
1: people can talk about playing hockey on the streets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now they're playing hurling up there. Coolers become this incredibly successful uh, club on the grounds of Doki United. Um, So that's that's a big change for Doki.
1: but go back to Quinns. so, so
0: quins I... uh, was there's a quins was assembled with, along with a couple of sites beside it to build 100 apartments and uh, about 4 or 5 years ago and the planners including on board pernola decided that quins was of social importance and inverted commas, it's not of architectural importance but of social importance and therefore it shouldn't be knocked down uh, and i think at the time there was quite a few pubs that people felt shouldn't have gone. Like for example, the George Bernard Shaw, or the Pod, the Red Box. all these kind of social cultural places have been closed down. The Kitchen, Reroll, the nightclub I used to own. And, uh, and so the city's still have been carved out uh, of those kinds of things. So they said no to the developer for 100 apartments. Now clearly the state, and particularly Dublin, needs apartments. So it's a, it's a controversial decision. Now, where are people gonna live? On the other hand, you know, going to the, for the day out in Crow Park and having a beer before and after is also very important to people. So it was a balancing act. Um, of course, from my, from my perspective, you know, that's an opportunity for me. There's a big field beside it, um, 66 metres by 16, and we're going to put um, 20 food trucks into that. And we hope that, you know, the, the food trucks are going to be interesting. It's going to be incubated for young chefs. Uh, to get into business because they can get into business with us for almost nothing, and uh, and we're also going to be a music incubator because we have a nightclub at the back, and we're going to have a very progressive music policy. So we're going to try and nurture talent as well as celebrating the GA and not changing the name and and go back into the Irish revival with you know St Bridget and all those kind of things and we're having a lot of fun doing that actually. So, I mean, I really, really enjoy that. You know, I'm actually buying books on the history of the GAA and trying to find out more about it. Um, I even went to an under-16 final the other day, uh, which I really enjoyed. It was really good fun.
1: OK, but tell us, how soon do you anticipate and expect to have Quinns up and running It should be
0: in the summer of this year.
1: Because I passed it last week and it looks like a ruin, like a wreck at the
0: moment. It's not a wreck. It's, it, looks, it, looks, <laughs> it looks worse than it is. Um, but, uh, you know, the wiring was okay. The plumbing is okay. You know, the fundamentals of the building are fine. But isn't
1: there a lot of the building that needs to be completely rebuilt?
0: Well, that's the field. So that's just a hoarding. So what we're going to do with the field beside it, uh, the field of dreams, is, is, is flatten it and put a planning application in for a temporary use, just as they did down in George Bennett's Shaw, which was very successful. And, uh, you know, it'll be a curfew and it'll be very carefully monitored. And uh, we hope to sort of encourage... Uh, lots of interesting uh, food vans and permanent kitchens uh, to, to to do some business there. I mean, clearly, you know, it's been done in other countries, but clearly it's really, really hard for a young person to get into business. And we can just say, look, you pay the rent weekly, you know, there's the kitchen. Off you go. Good luck. And if they're talented and good, maybe they'll generate you know a brand and there's been many examples of that actually where you know a food truck becomes a very successful restaurant one one of those is is in fact Shook in Drumcondra where there's the most astonishing restaurant that actually was not that long ago a small van for match day and it's it's full all the time and it's really good and it's really good value
1: I know you have been involved over in uh, Cable Street yeah but have you ever gone this far north side in your business ventures? This is adventures?
0: my first yeah, I've been on Cable street for 26 years and uh, and I used to look longingly at, at you know at Parliament Street and say why is it that 200 yards makes such a difference? You know because we had the front lounge on Parliament Street which was highly successful and then we had what was called Gubu on Cable Street for a good few years, 13 or 14 years and we we found it very very hard to get people to cross the river. Now Cable Street of course is, is a really changed street. It's pedestrianised. It's full of interesting shops, the mostly indigenous. It's kind of the street that the boom, the boom didn't really ever get to Capel Street. So you still have the dartboard shop and the and the sex shop and the tool shop and all sorts of bizarre shops. You know the spanner shop and uh, you know owner-operated stuff, small cafés, little little restaurants. And uh, so we we had a, a couple of pubs there. Um, for a good long, good long while, which are very successful. Louis Copeland trades there for many years because he's near the Law Library, and all the the barristers want to get their clobber.
1: Which is why there's also a lot of antique shops there. But is that the type of street that you think Dublin needs to encourage and retain?
0: I mean, I, I would have very strong views about you know the destructive nature of ever rising rents, uh, and I think there's a big story of that in our city, particularly during the boom re- years, and and of course with upper-dunnie rent reviews. Um, so that, that really closed a lot of great shops down. You know, to think of a few, the Dolls Hospital, for example, which was an amazing, an amazing shop, not only to shop in, but even to walk into it. It was like it was, a, it was a piece of Dublin history. And they were sort of moved off Georgia Street because of rising rents. And then they went to the Paris Court Centre. And then they found, well, on the third floor of the Paris Court Centre, they just couldn't trade. And, and I, I think those businesses are a great loss to the city. Uh, and, and I lobbied very hard at the time for, that, for those upper downly rent reviews to be abolished. And in fact, Labour and Fine Gael promised to do that when they went into government in 2011. But the Attorney General at the time warned them against that because um, there would have been uh, property right claims against the state and the Attorney General at the time said it would amount to $20 Now, other people didn't think that. Um, They thought that was wrong advice. And certainly the advice that we got was that it was wrong advice. In certain circumstances, for example, property rights can be diminished. And Ireland, of course, has this tremendous... Addiction to property rights. You know, um, the list of shopkeepers that went uh, went bust at that time because of Upper Down rent review was really, really, really long.
1: And I'll talk more about your own experiences in that in just a little while. But I am interested in what you say about you've reamed off a lot of pubs that have closed. Yeah. There's people talking about pubs having a cultural significance in Ireland which needs to be protected.
0: Really? Well, I I, I mean, I, you know, there's... The, the, the people go to the pub to chat to meet. It's a very democratic place. It's a public house in Inverted Commas. It's where you ought to be talking. The lawyer ought to be talking to the postman, talking to the carpenter, talking to the broadcaster, talking to the, it's a place where people meet and they talk, and that's a very important part of life. Um, and a well-run pub will, 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 will encourage that, you know. I mean I know I've lived here in Rathmines for the last thirty years and, and, and Roddy, the local barman, was a friend
1: and if i couldn't bar- in slatteries in
0: slatteries yeah he was he was he was a friend and you know if you didn't meet a friend you'd be talking banter to him and his his amazing barman and, and it was tremendous fun and it, it kind of anchor it, it certainly anchors me and lots of my neighbors around the area we we meet in the slats it's 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 a hoot it's fun it's not about heavy drinking it's about friendship and uh so i think that Pubs do play a vital role. So
1: what's happened in our society? Do you think that so many pubs have closed because they can't make ends meet?
0: Well, I think it's obviously there's massive habit changes. There's drink and driving. There's no smoking in bars. The young people are mad into into health. Um, Pubs, there's still a lot of pubs in Ireland, 7,500. But again, you, you know, there was a massive property boom. And therefore, the value of the pubs went too high. You know, far too high. I mean, pubs are just another shop, really. It's another form of a shop. Um, you know, so the rent reviews were absolutely absurd and an and, and upward only. And the one we had in Cape Street, in fact, was one of, the, one of those pubs. It was an upward only rent review. And uh, it, the rent went incredibly high. And we managed to persuade the receiver who owned the property to have the rent. So in twenty six years, the rent went from two hundred twenty thousand down to about a hundred and twenty, and that's sustainable. And the particular pub on Cable Street it, it serves a very important social role. Just
1: remind us what that pub it's is. It's
0: Panty Bar. So that is the HQ for um, you know Gay Ireland, and you know has been highly involved in, in raising money for um, uh, repeal of the Eighth or. Marriage reform and and so on, and every i mean the amount of quizzes we had and money raising events and all sorts of things you know, on uh, on an endless basis
1: what got you involved there as the straight lad alongside panty vesion well and I, I, else? I
0: i have i in fact had the front lounge, which was a gay bar, which we opened in about ninety six ninety seven and at the time we had the globe, which was really famous it was actually world famous but um, I, I was offered by Temple Bar Cultural Trust, I was offered a, a premises, I was given a cheque. It was very fair rent, no personal guarantee. And they gave me a cheque for 120,000, which at the time was a huge amount of money. And we built this thing. At the time, I, I didn't want to build something that would compete with my other pub, which was kind of a dark brown, red brick kind of pub. So I built a white pub. And uh, sure enough, all the gays decided that they loved it. And, uh, and they were very welcome. And so that became...
1: And that might sound like, why wouldn't they be? But Ireland was different in the 1990s, well, even that late, wasn't it? It was changing.
0: Uh, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, like, gayness was segregated. Like, if you went to a pub, it was with only gay people. And now, you know, there's all sorts of people in a gay bar, and gays go to other bars, so it's not segregated anymore. And that is that is a true sign of progress. Like, you don't have to be, you just... You know, your sexual preferences is your own business. You know, do do what you will, and uh, you know. So the front lounge was was the first such pub, where you had everybody in the same room. And I and I, and I am to this day very proud of that, because it, it, that served a social one. Well. It was a really successful business, by the way, and it was a delight to run. There was never any trouble. It was not late night. It was very very pretty, very beautiful looking place. And to my mind, that was sort of Ireland waking up and saying, "Look, be who you want to be." You know and and that was it was very very enjoyable
1: why did you get into this business in the first place
0: i mean i sort of by accident really but you know from first for me I, I mean i love architecture and i love style i love building i love making things i mean to me to make something to design something to actually build something that's tangible is 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 hugely enjoyable i really like it and i also like people so you know the actual the the crack in the in in a bar and a nightclub is something that i really enjoy and i think you know, publicans generally have to like people. You know, hospitality is is, is hospitality. So, I mean, in micro I've generally found sort of brownfield sites, places places where there was nothing, and, and and turn them into something interesting. So, when other people buy bars, I generally, you know, build them and put a license in, and, and I think I've probably done more than anyone else in that regard. And and then quite often I sell them, you know, and say, look, I've done my t- in the front line just once case. So I did eleven years there, very happily. And uh, <clears throat> some Irish-Americans bought it. <coughs> now they spent, in my view, too much buying it, but that wasn't my business. I'd done my 11 years. I didn't particularly want to sell it. I was really fond of it, but I was offered some money. And after all, I'm a businessman. So we sold it then and, and, and moved on to the next project. So
1: you came out of Trinity where you had shared rooms with the economist David McWilliams, mm. who I think is still a friend of yours. And I remember the first place that you opened where I would have first come across you because we're of the same age. I'm very near to here in Rapmines as well, a place called Wolfman Jack's, yeah, which was a restaurant rather than a pub.
0: It was a restaurant, yeah. <laughs>
1: so was restaurants your first impression rather than pubs?
0: Well, the restaurants was... I mean, rest, restaurant. it was easier to open a restaurant because of the licensing laws, but at the time they were beginning the liberalisation of the licensing laws. So the special restaurant licence was... The license, which was highly, it was fought about a lot by the publicans. You know the idea that you get a beer in a restaurant. My goodness me! And there was all sorts of inspections, and you had to have soup, and you had to have veg, and, and you were inspected by Bord Fola. And is it a bona fide restaurant? And I remember having a row with the, the inspectorate, which was Bord Fola at the time, about the validity of a Heinz tomato ketchup bottle on the table and I informed my inspector that, in fact, I'd been to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and there was the bottle as a design icon. And I explained this to him, and we managed to get a passport fortune. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. But I think we were the second or third one licensed in the country, and it was quite onerous. You know, the conditions were quite onerous, and you couldn't have a bar counter. It had to be a hatch, and so on and so on. And that was the beginning of, of, of the liberalisation of, of Irish licensing laws, which have kind of been liberal by stealth you know, over time what happened
1: to wolfman jacks
0: well we came to um uh, I'm
1: sorry because it's now a boots pharmacy
0: it is we came we were we were tenants so we um we got a student loan or a young entrepreneur's loan um in 1989 and albert reynolds was the minister for finance at double a rates with no personal guarantee and it was fifty thousand pounds and that's a huge amount of money at the time like it was an unthinkable amount of money, and you know we didn't have to get mum and dad to guarantee it for us. It was kind of us. We wrote a proposal, uh, which took a long time. It was our first one, and uh, we—I was—I read the budget speech because I studied economics like Mac Williams, and uh, we wrote to the chief executives, or I wrote obnoxious uh, perhaps, but we wrote to the chief chief executives of of the four clearing banks, and they all wrote back to me actually. And the following week, we were in AIB. And the following week, we got the loan. And that was sort of the beginning of, of, of our journey, if you like. Now, we wandered along the road. And of course, despite the fact that you, you might have studied business, you're pretty naive. Like, you know, the, 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 the street teaches you business pretty a bit faster and a bit more ruthlessly. So it was very successful. It employed a lot of people. It looked cool. It had a queue down the road. It had a really young staff. It was great fun. Uh, and then it, we tripped up in around 92 uh, when the interest rates went to 80. Overnight rates went to 92%. A lot of people don't remember that. But our customer base was um, half young people and single people and half you know, the denizens of Rathmines and Ranelagh. And their biggest cost in life was, of course, their mortgage. And they stopped going out. So our turnover sort of went down. And then we had the first time we ever had a sort of a, a tax debt. The banks weren't lending any money. We didn't know what to do. We were in first name terms with the sheriff. We'd never met a sheriff before, but there was the sheriff with a silver cane going, good afternoon, Mr. Burke. And, uh, you know, so we, we elected to sell the business. Um, uh, and we did successfully sell it. Uh, it was the first sale we ever made. Didn't want, again, we didn't want to sell it, but it seemed wise at the time, and we managed to sell it. And it, it was bored as a going concern. And so we wandered off down the road uh, having paid our creditors and you know a bit bruised and battered, a lot more educated uh, in the ways of business, um, it was sl- slightly humiliated, but also I think the most important thing you can say about that is that um, we realized it wasn't the end of the world. like we still had our friends and our family and our health, and, you know, and we were young, and we had this fantastic education. So both me and my partner I went you know into business with a lot more knowledge than we had when we started who your time, partner at that time Bobby Doyle so he went to Amsterdam with the Guinness scheme at the time for opening Irish pubs around the world it was a very brilliant scheme very 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 intelligent by Guinnesses and I went down the road uh, to George's Street where we started the Globe uh, and we got the freehold of the Globe for very little money indeed and so like my demise was uh, was quite short-lived.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there that sort of words that jump out because you would have had a lot more experiences with the sheriff over the years and issues with banks and issues with the revenue commissioners. Um, you just seem to keep bouncing back though. You just seem to have an extraordinary thing. Just, okay, that's happened. Let's go
0: again, which is what you're doing in Quinns at the moment as well. Yeah, well, I think you have to. I mean, A, I don't know. No one going to give me a job. Um B, you know, this, this, the scar tissue that you get along the way is a learning. And, you know, again, like this early lesson I got, you know, in capitalism, you know, sometimes stuff happens out there, like Iraq war, wars happen. I mean, I, who would have thought crashes happened? You know, the currency collapse in 92. That was really the end of us and our minds. And who would have predicted that? And so there's all these exogenous events that really are beyond the most brilliant economist. Um, And we know what happened in the great crisis of 2008. I mean, who would have predicted? I thought that property was wildly overvalued and I sold all the property I had, but I never thought that the entire banking system was going to go. And I never thought that Ireland itself would become insolvent. I mean, that was beyond my prediction. I, I really did believe that, you know, the returns on capital in property were bananas like 1%, 1.5%. I'm going, what about depreciation? What about amortization? What about interest rates, which do change? I mean, these were not in the calculations of the likes of Anglo-Irish Bank. And when I said to Anglo, and I did borrow money from them, I said, I never heard of EBITDA before, you people. You know, what, what what is this about? Don't tell me things don't depreciate. They do. And, you know, in our industry, they depreciate pretty quickly. So Just for those who may
1: not be into business, is Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And lots of people used to just simply, when I was growing up and doing my commerce degree, you looked at what your earnings were and you didn't have all of these caveats. Yeah. And you looked at the cash flow when oh. you were selling a business. Yeah. And you didn't start giving yourself free passes on certain things. But yet a lot of people did become very wealthy well, it, it, on the
0: back of EBITDA. Yeah, but well, it didn't really. It wasn't, it wasn't true wealth. You know, because, because you know... F- You know, everything depreciates. I mean, some old buildings actually appreciate, you know, like you think of something like The Globe, which is a lovely old Victorian building. You go, it was beautiful when it was built. It's still beautiful now. But the things that are in it, the wiring, the ventilation, the tills, all that stuff, the furnishings, they all have a shelf life. And you have to be very blunt. You know, you and your accountant have to be blunt and say, this stuff, a till will last five years, at the end of which time it goes in the bin. Give
1: give us a tour almost of... Dublin nightlife, and tell us about all the places you've named some of them already, but list all the places that you've been involved with.
0: Well, there's a long list, but um, I mean, I think Dublin went through a quite a glorious period in the, in the early '90s. You know, uh, the U2 opened a nightclub called the Kitchen. Um, Ross carl O'Brien was the architect. The sound system was the best I'd ever heard. And John Reynolds arrived and opened the Pod, um, which was European Club of the Year two years in a row. We opened the Rial which is kind of more of a, a a sort of a funk club and there's sort of more music with words kind of thing. And so Dublin was, had become, the landscape of Dublin had become uh, very interesting to to people under 20, for example, and uh, because there was this very exciting, viable nightlife. Um, you know, every night there was a, the interesting music going on and people going dancing. And so I mean, I happen to think that it was very important to sort of establish Dublin as this fun city for young people. And I think it greatly helped. Perhaps I'm over-egging the the effect of this, but it definitely meant that, you know, Intel, you know, their employees want to go dancing. They're young. And, And the same applies now. So cities that are attractive need to have a viable and sustainable nightlife.
1: So for all the hotels we're building in Dublin, is there enough nightlife for the people who come to stay in Dublin? Well... And that's not even for tourists, because you actually, but you've also put your finger on it. And I sometimes wonder about the modern generation of twenty and thirty somethings. Whereas we might have been going to all these clubs, or going down Leeson Street, or going to Lilies and staying out till three and four in the morning. Are they actually doing that now? Not just because they're more health focused, but it's sort of drinks parties at home, an hour in the pub or somewhere else, and then home early. It
0: seems. Well, I, th- that 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 is perhaps true, but. You see, people forget that, that you know, true nightclubbing is about music. So tr- real fans of music. And there are more fans of music than ever before because it's so accessible. It's so interesting that you can find all sorts of music that you love a- on the internet. It's, it's a free resource now. And I, 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 I think if someone supplies a sonic experience that's really interesting And I mean, sound has gone from where it was to someplace in the stratosphere. It is so brilliant. And that in itself is a thrill. And then you put great music through this incredible sound system and you have something that's really, really fabulous. And dancing is really, really healthy. It's really good for you. It's joyous. And so, you know, I think this generation haven't really been offered a, a, a place to do that. And uh, so it's my intention at the Rira Queens to to do that again. Um, and
1: what we, sort of music do you love?
0: Oh, I kind of love all music. I, I kind of I love classical music. I love jazz. I love I I love uh, sing, my probably singer songwriter music and acoustic music. I also like. I mean, I've in the last while I've heard some dance music. that oh God, I'm changing my mind here. This is really, really interesting. So I love old music and uh, I think it's it, it's 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 a great thing to like. It's well, so a, then
1: I'm going to ask a question, which may seem ageist, but I'm allowed to ask it, I think because of the fact we're the same age and they were both 57. Um, can a 57-year-old actually adequately anticipate and cater for the musical tastes of couple of generations younger
0: absolutely not so I don't need, to, I need <laughs> help from young people <laughs> so I haven't the rashers. you know but I know I know what I don't know and you know I mean I, I read this quote the other day you know it's it's not what you know the problem it's what you know that ain't so from Mark Twain and like I know that I don't know the tastes of young people and so generally uh, quite often I've always worked with people who know more than me uh, of a different generation and, and I, I really enjoy that as well I and mean, that's quite fun
1: Talking about resilience though, some of the people that you worked with most prominently unfortunately died young and died, I suppose, burdened down by deaths. And that would particularly be John Reynolds and Hugh O'Regan.
0: Yeah, um, they, unfortunately they did uh, end their lives a bit, a bit too young and they were hugely energetic and creative and, and deeply brave. I mean, I, you know, you've got to admire their courage, you know. I mean. Hugh built uh, the Morrison Hotel when he was 33, and uh, that's a big hotel, and they're very complex buildings to, to build. I mean, hotels are difficult to build, and uh, you know, I mean, I remember Hugh saying, yeah, "No one knows how to build a, a, a building of this standard in Ireland right now," and uh, and that was the sort of early 90s, and uh, and he did, and he got help from all over the place, and worked with John Russia using John Russia design, and Clive Vandergrind did the art, and and so on. And it was a it was a wildly ambitious endeavor. Um, and a beautiful building. It is a beautiful building. And that was the old print works, um, which was actually the, the scene of great club nights. I mean, fantastic club nights that, you know, are unforgettable in my mind. You know, so, you know, in one sense, we lost the club and we got this beautiful hotel. What's, so what's changed? Um, and, and Hugh, I mean, at one time, wanted to open a Morrison in London and New York. I mean, the his, his ambition was limitless, actually. Um, so... Well, he he built a lot of things around the city, um, and uh, yeah, he was he was an enigma.
1: And then what about John Reynolds? I mean, you worked closely with John, but I think if I'm correct, you were sort of estranged at the time he died.
0: Yeah, we were. Yeah, no, we worked we worked together for a good long time. Um, John w- was a promoter and a lover. He wasn't. Mad, he wasn't. In, he was afraid of food. Actually, he 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 wasn't. What it wasn't really. You know, he didn't know how to run a food outlet. And I met him walking along Georgia Street one day and he had the market bar, which at the time was a derelict warehouse um, known as a sausage factory because burned sausages used to be made there. Uh, And it was an abattoir. It was a pork abattoir originally, part of the South Street markets. And uh, I said, John, I'm sure I have an idea for that because the planners had made it clear they wanted no amplified music, whatever, because it was surrounded by by homes. So I said, sure, I have an idea for that, John. And uh, we sat down on the back of an envelope. And and literally in five minutes, we did an agreement. And I went in the next week. And uh, we built um, the market bar. We built it in nine weeks, actually. And it became a sort of a tapas restaurant uh, where, you know, short order food, very good value in a pub environment. And, uh, I mean, that was just an instant success. It was good value. It was lovely wine. It appealed to women a lot. Because mostly because of the value, and uh, we were doing five or six thousand plates a week there easily, and uh, no late night, and you know no music either. So John, so John the promoter and the nightclub owner, suddenly had to go with no music. But you know the, the hum of people was enough in that building. It was a lovely hum, uh, people chatting and having a laugh, and so you know we didn't need music, um, and uh, that was that was very enjoyable to build because it was a beautiful red brick building. And one of the first steel frame buildings in the city, you know. Um, so that was, that, was good, that was good fun. It had no windows, which is, you know, other people were looking at the building, such as Liam O'Dwyer, and saying, actually, yeah, I can't be building that without windows. And I said, well, it has north-facing lights, you know, because very often factories have these north-facing lights, so there's steady light through the day for, for people to do their work. And Victorian ventilation, so that, you know, you use, you use the elements to get the hot air up. And to this day, that's what we use. You have a string and you open a window. And the hot air rises. And so uh, it, was, it was a very, very enjoyable project. Um, and John was very good at letting me at it. I mean, he never, he never interfered. He said, sure, that's great. If he wanted something, he said, sure, that's great. And, and we got on very well for about 11 or 12 years. Uh, and then we, we started, I mean, quite often, and business partnerships become fraught. And this was no exception. So eventually, eventually I was bought out of it. But I had eleven years there, and I was paid a salary, and i i enjoyed I enjoyed them all.
1: Why do business relationships become frost? Because you have had a whole series of partners. Own foil would be another one. Yeah. Why do these relationships
0: end? Well, I think I mean, uh, you know, I think when hunger comes in the door, love goes out the window. I mean, everyone's under pressure. The business produces a certain amount. Um. You know, sometimes you know a relationship has has had, has had its had its time you know um so i mean i dare say i mean you know the market bar john added various bits and pieces to it and i don't and of course i'm entirely biased by this but i don't think you know john was was more of a promoter he preferred putting on electric picnic which he absolutely adored uh, you know and altogether now and you know forbidden fruit i mean that was him in his element I mean, I wouldn't even contemplate those those projects
1: because you're juggling an enormous number of balls to get those well, things Well, because, going, because aren't you?
0: also be. I mean, I remember you know being at picnic with John, and you know there was a bad weather forecast, and he was there with an anemometer, which is a wind reading thing, and uh, you know if it went above twenty five knots, the whole thing was going to be closed down, and uh, and he's got a couple of million quid in the fields. I mean, it is utterly terrifying to me you know the level of bravery and you know the amount of things that can go wrong but john absolutely you know he was in his welly boots he was controlling it he had his radios he had his and that was him you know doing what he really loved you know whereas you know the marker bar is what i really loved you know i was happy cycling in through the front door making sure the brasses were done and the coffee was fresh and you know so that was me and my element. So,
1: can I ask, is that where your attention to detail comes in? That as a business person, you're into the division of what's required, and then into the operations, but that when it comes to the finances, that things get a little bit chaotic. No,
0: I no, I, I, I consider myself financially illiterate. Um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm deluded, but you know, I mean, I I am financially literate But I mean, there's there's nothing you can there's nothing. Sorry, there's a difference
1: between being financially literate and being disciplined, perhaps, in how you actually operate the business. Look, I mean, I'm asking you this, and I mean, it's because you've emerged from bankruptcy. Yeah. You were, well, this year, I think you'll be eligible again to become a, a company director after 7 years. That's bank. correct, yeah. You know, that would suggest that no matter how literate you are, that maybe attention to detail in actually ticking all the boxes is not your strong point.
0: Well, perhaps not, but I mean, I mean, what can I say? I mean, like, you know, in, in the boom years, I mean, people like me and Hugh and John and others, and many, we were offered so much money to do this and that. And honestly, I spent my whole time saying, forget it. What are you talking about? You know, so our borrowings, you know, collectively were never massive. And our turnovers were high and we were big employers too. So we, we employed collectively about a thousand people. And, you know, what really, I suppose, damaged us a lot was, was the upward-only run, rent reviews. And to, to, to cite one such one was, to say, Bewley's. We ran Bewley's for a number of years. And we, we got the turnover to 11 million. But then the rent went from 760 to 1.6 million. And the, the business couldn't support that. So I had to back out of that one. And we lost a million and a half doing that. But that wasn't what we thought was going to happen when we took the lease. Had we known that, we never would have done it. And yet it was an important thing to do because Bewley's was such a central part of the city, not only in its physical way, but in its cultural way. You know, it was, it was you know, the Bewley's were Quakers. It was part of the history of the state. You know, it was a very Protestant firm. It, it joined the new state. It became Catholic. Everyone has a memory there. Um, you know, so there was, yeah, it, it, it was a, a very great privilege to do it. And we got the turnover to what, eleven million. I mean it's never been there before and it you know and it won't be there since either, but in my view, but that was destroyed by, you know, this relentless rise in the value of property. And that and that was the whole of society. So we all got deluded by that, including all the banks. You know, they're lending money to our landlords, in this case Johnny Ronan, because oh so the rent should be this and the multiple's fifty and the building's worth hundred million. It is, it is on its arse worth 100 million it's a cafe It sells cups of coffee for three quid you know it, it there should be a nice economic rent but not a super normal rent and uh, i think that's what happened all over the city that was really in terms of what happened to me uh, what you know we lost about five or six businesses on the back of that
1: and how did that make you feel at the time
0: it was devastating because i mean i think it's quite prescient because like a restaurant employs a lot of people it employs a lot of young people and plumbers and vegetable growers you know, meat suppliers you know so there's a huge ecosystem in and around a restaurant Now a pub is different you know you have two or three suppliers you have guinness you have heineken it's a duopoly you know you don't have that many inputs but a restaurant is different you have loads of different people involved um you know where you're sourcing out you're this and you're that and sometimes you have relationships with them you know the farmer you know the egg supplier he comes in on monday with the eggs and you go how are you paddy you know these are this is a community and the money is it's a very effective way of spreading money around eating out is actually if you want to be a keynesian go eat out it's 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 a great way of spreading money around it's probably a pretty bad business um and particularly now you know because you have you know this legacy of this ridiculous property addiction we have and it, the addiction is not mirrored in other countries where they have fair rents for a long long time you know but here we have you know a very deaf government putting the bat rate up to 13.5%. You know, in an industry that doesn't have returns of even 13.5%. You have property and banks lending money into property. Landlords demanding too much and not realizing they have to do a fair deal. And then you have the minimum wage. Hard to argue with the minimum wage. Where do people live? They're not earning that much money. So, you know, there, I think there were some very intelligent suggestions last weekend in, in the Sunday Business Post. It was actually the editorial where they suggested that the, the VAT rate in restaurants, not attached to hotels, should be 4%. I actually think it should be zero rated um, because of the massive contribution that it makes to all sorts of other things, farmers, egg makers. Uh, it's the first place where many of our children get their jobs. They learn how to clock in, how to be punctual, how to be timely, how to, be, how to serve, you know, and how to get on with their workmates. I mean, if I can think of the number of people that I have, you know, taught how to come to work. Uh, by the way, I really enjoy it. It's, it's not, this is a privilege from, from my perspective. However, you know, there's lots of things that restaurants do that contribute a great deal to, to 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 the apart from the fact that, of course, we all love eating out. It gives wives and cooks a day out and, uh, you know, relief from the house and it is a social thing as well. Um, so I... I, I I think the government needs to really look at that now it's 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 to my opinion in my opinion it's very important and Ireland has generated such a fantastic food culture now and yet all these restaurants some of which I know I'm texting friends of mine in the industry going I'm so sorry I'm so sorry do we have too many of them no we don't have enough of them because they can't survive I mean the Nash 19 closed down a very famous Cork restaurant that was a good restaurant that served a great purpose And, uh, you know, the thing that happened in in that particular restaurant is you were met by Claire. How are you? You know, what's going on? It was a social thing. It was uh, where people met people, uh, you know, and she, after 40 years, uh, uh, not overborrowing, not, you know, not going crazy, not being Celtic Tigerish, uh, 40 years of really hard work, she's closed down. And that's a loss. And I I think, you know, the government, you know, we're a small country so we can act quickly and swiftly we can change the law like clicking our fingers we can do that and you know the government wakey wakey lads you know do something about this this is not i'm not in the restaurant business anymore but i think you know most restaurants are small they don't have a lot of capital they employ a lot of people you know it's very hard to get people to work at the moment because the minimum wage where do people live so wakey wakey lads cut the VAT rate to zero Hotels are different because they have this massive, we know from room rates, which are published in our newspapers, are very high and, and hotels are making super normal profits right now, fine. But the little restaurateur down the end of your street is struggling and many, many people I know are giving up.
1: Just this, again, slight diversion. You mentioned Nash's in Cork. There's one, I think, of about four restaurants in Cork City Centre in recent weeks who have closed. Also, at Cork, one of us most famous Chinese restaurants in Patrick Street. Yeah. was 65 years. I know it, I know it, yeah, I know,
0: yeah.
1: And that's gone as well. Because you were in the bodega in Cork as well for a while. So do we have a problem, though, that... We are neglecting our city centres, not just Dublin, but Cork City Centre, and that this is a thing that people go their shopping and shopping centres out of town, that we are losing the heart of our cities, not just Dublin.
0: Well, I, I want to sort of harp back to uh, you know, this idea that you know, creative things and interesting things happen when property prices are fair. Like, I'm not saying that there's no role for landlords. There is a role for landlords. We need finished buildings for people to rent because they don't have the capital. However, they've had a free ride for 40 years. The rents have gone up exponentially, and by and you know in, by definition, rental income in economics is, 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 is income that's not earned. You know that's the definition of rent when you look at your economics textbook. And unearned income to get you on the golf course on Friday, it doesn't contribute. You know. It really doesn't. And so, I mean, there's a brilliant example in where I'm working now in Drumcondra of a building which was the old uh, School for the Deaf. There's about 40 businesses in that building. And, the, you know, from yoga classes to a small cafe to the souk restaurant to a small gym. And they're all there in this old building because the rents are fair. And it's a, it's a hive of activity and optimism and youth. And, it's, you know, it's, I really admire, I really, it's a crash, it's a dance school. The list is endless. And it's, it's full of people, you know, fulfilling their independent dreams. And, and I really admire it. And that's, that's just about fair rents. And, you know, I mean, here we are back, you know, after the, you know, the land wars, you know, fixity of tenure, freedom of rent and freedom of sale. We're talking about that to this day. You know it's it's absolutely wild.
1: I want to go back to Billinter house. Yeah. And the reason I want to go there is because of what you said earlier what I asked you about maybe not attention to detail because it strikes me from reading back on court reports at the time in relation to your efforts to try and get a personal insolvency plan that you didn't get the same letter that paddy kelly one of your co-investors got no
0: no um that
1: you should have insisted on getting that letter and if you had you wouldn't have gotten yourself into the deep personal financial
0: yeah, problems well, that you did uh, yeah, yeah yeah i mean I, I mean under partnership law you know if one partner has to be treated the same as the other. And in that particular case, the bank, which was Bank of Scotland said, look, if you sell the thing at exactly the wrong time for 3 million actually, we will forgive you the debt. And in that case we said, uh, yes, sir, you know, absolutely. You know, whatever you want, we owe you the money. And we did sell it for exactly 3 million. And I, I actually sold it myself. And I remember saying to the purchaser, I don't want 3 million and five, I don't want 2.9. The bank have said, that's what they want. That's the price. And we did so. And you it. thought
1: then that you were clear of responsibility For two
0: years, I thought, you know, I was out of the gap. Um, and then what happens very often is that residual loans get sold to vultures, uh, Goldman Sachs, and you know, I've been very critical of them many times. And so two years after I thought I could get on with my life, um, I got uh, two solicitor's letters. Um, one... Uh, on, lo- on the foot of this personal guarantee that I thought I had discharged. And uh, another one as well in relation to what's called a personal insolvency arrangement. And so they torpedoed that with one substantial lo- law firm and they torpedoed the other with another law firm. So I w- was there with not a lot of income uh, facing, you know, very expensive legal bills uh, to fight those things. And, you know, one thing we know about Ireland is that the law... Is expensive uh, so to fight those two things I needed to hire a full team of lawyers I need to go down the high court against an opponent that had you know a lot more money than me and uh, so I, I, I also there is an element and I will admit this is that I didn't have the mental capacity to do that I was I was beaten up and I I just didn't have it in me to fight I you know i just put the head down I said Jesus can I really do this again However, I mean, in in the insolvency process, you sort of you you become, and the, the insolvency service becomes you. So instead of me acting as as Jay Burke, there's a guy. There's four or five people in the insolvency service who are me. It, Let's
1: just clarify this. Is this what you were intending to go through before bankruptcy, or is this how the bankruptcy is This is how it, it works you? now.
0: So in the end, I, I didn't have the energy or the money to go down to the four courts and and I and I've been down there a fair few times and I and I believe in our court system actually I believe it's a fair system I've never felt disappointed in, in in the courts in Ireland I'm a great believer in our judiciary and a great admirer of of our judiciary actually
1: it's just very expensive it's
0: just you know in order to go down you know you you got to have the dough and and, and you got to have you got to you got to be robust you, you have to be able to you know face you know deeply personal criticism on the stand. Accusations that are, you know, maybe untrue but, but hurtful. And so you need a thick skin and you need a fat wallet. And, uh, and I had neither of those things. So, so the consequence of that misadventure, I suppose, I mean, Blinter House, by the way, is doing very well. It employs 80 people. The state receives half a million a year. I'm very proud of our work there. It's a restored building. You know, it's one of the most important country houses in Ireland, maybe in the top ten. And I really enjoyed building it. Um, it was a fantastic uh, experience, you know, for me. I love doing that. And I'm, I go down there now. I planted 400 trees and they're big. And I'm really proud of them. I love them. <laughs> so, and I'm very welcome down there as well, you know, which is also very nice because I did build it. So I, when I go down there, I'm welcome like an old war hero, you know. So I get a free cup of coffee for my misadventure, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I am proud of it. And I think... I think I'm right to be proud of it and and you know there's other people like you're never it's never just yours you know like any business involves lots and lots of people stakeholders staff you know the community so I don't you know I don't think it's just me I think there's lots of people involved the, the locals in the area and you know it's a really really beautiful thing.
1: Sorry for pressing you on this yeah. and I do another podcast, Path to Power, with possibly Ireland's most famous former bankrupt, Ivan Yates, oh, yeah. who went off to Wales for a year yeah. and had a miserable year while he served out his sentence and yeah. then came back and became, again, exceptionally busy and, as I slag him about, hoovered up the cash afterwards. <laughs> what was your experience of well, being mean, I, bankrupt I, 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 like?
0: Look, I know I, I've... I know Ivan, and I, I've I've heard him many times talking about you know what he went through, and and actually it's it's a sad tale, yeah. And mostly because he was lonely, and he was in Cardiff, not his Swansea. City. Swansea. Swansea, pardon me. It, 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 it seems to me a city that he didn't love. He misses people. He missed his family. He misses whatever. He did. You know, he had a miserable time. But, he had a miserable time, but and that was the law then, and and many people did go to England to go bankrupt and were estranged. And I, I, you know, I, I you know. In, in some cases, I know that it, it, maybe they didn't commit suicide, but accelerated bad health. And so what happened in Ireland in and around post-crisis is that the state uh, put together a new set of insolvency laws. And they are actually very progressive. So they're much better than the English ones and the American ones. And uh, they're they're kindly laws. Uh, and the idea is that they rehabilitate the likes of Ivan. and myself and others and many, many others. Uh, and it doesn't matter. How, you don't have to be big to do this. It, it, you don't, it doesn't ha- it's, it's not about size or scale. It's about getting people out of you know, a, a death spiral and getting them in control of their lives again. So the public opinion is way behind the law in this case, interestingly enough. So in my case, you know, I eventually went bankrupt. And so the, the, insolvency, the insolvency service of Ireland becomes you. So all my assets go in on one column, all my liabilities go in another. And the belinter, the belinter curse, whatever, I mean, I supplied them with all the documentation and it turns out that, in fact, it was a settled debt. And, in fact, I didn't need to go bankrupt at all. But I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the wherewithal to do that. So they did it for me. And they did it really well. And they live very kindly, you know, so this is a, as long as you're, you I mean, it's a high court procedure, you, you must tell the truth, you must reveal everything you have or don't have. But, you know, this is, this is a, a can be a helpful process where if you're exhausted by the process, you know, the ISI, the Insolvency Service, take over the process for you. And uh, so I, I mean, I have three or four people in the ISI that I know personally now. And I emailed. What about this? What about that? And they emailed me. What about this? What about that? You know, and I am now discharged. I have no debt whatsoever, um, and I'll probably have a surplus out of bankruptcy. So that's I'm the first bankrupt with a surplus in the history of the state, you know, and uh, yeah.
1: How liberating is it not to have debt?
0: I mean, debt is the fuel of of business. You know, like you, you know. So we need debt to to build stuff, and cause, and you know, uh, so I mean. I've actually been approached by banks who are saying, well, already, you know, say, look, what about this? What about that? Because banks, of course, make their money by lending to people who make things, uh, you know, who build houses or or in my case, hospitality units. Um, So, yeah, you need debt, you know. But I mean, should debt be personally guaranteed? I think not. I think the business case should be made, you know, on the back of the business. Rather than on the back of some notion of this, you know, the strong man will always pay his debts back. You know, the strong man sometimes is, you know, events happen and and banks know that and they price that in.
1: The revenue doesn't necessarily agree with that, though, does it?
0: Well, the revenue, I think, have been, you know, I've dealt with the revenue forever. I've always found them fair, you know, you owe the money, you owe the money. You know, it's a liability. they, they, They now, I mean, they're now all the warehouse debt, I think. You no, know, they've been fair about that. I mean, the revenue are not the ogres <laughs> that they're made out to be. You know,
1: you've been very generous, given that you've had more than a few run-ins with them.
0: Well, I mean, I've never found that I've never found it. You know, you just you know, it's it's a process. You deal with it. These are you know, the, the civil service is okay.
1: And coming out of bankruptcy, I mean, you managed. You you held on to your family home.
0: Well, for the yeah, for the, for the yeah, I, I've tried to. For the time being, I have yeah. Um,
1: Is that important to you?
0: Well, I'm rooted in in, in, in this neighbourhood. I, I, I absolutely you know adore it, and I you know my friendships with my neighbours and and you know and, you know I, everything. I have been here for such a long time. It's a, I've never lived in a place longer, and I really do like it. Um, it's changed a lot over time. It's got more bourgeois. The likes of yourself moving in, Matt. You know, successful broadcasters. But it was it was Bedsitland and it was very diverse back in, in you know, see, this is where people got their bedsit. It's where people who were in trouble came. If you got out of St. Pat's, you got a bedsit in Rathmines. It was always had this amazing diversity about it. And because I suppose it gives that Rathmines rawness a little bit, it still has a bit of it. But I mean, there was no restaurants here. There was 27 chippers in Rathmines at one time. You know, 27 chippers. Now, there's not 27 chippers anymore. And, you know, it's, there's consultants and lawyers and all that kind of thing here now, you know, and prices... Are-
1: there's still a mix of people here. Though.
0: Yeah, I would argue that the mix has been diluted. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nice place to live. And it's full of, you know, cinemas and supermarkets and swimming pools. And the pool down below there in is a, is a, it's a it's a public pool. It's actually wondrous. It is. It's really, really fabulous. And, it's an, you know, it's a great example of how, you know, the state can do amazing things you know, a public-private partnership. I think it was with SAIC, is it?
1: I think so, yes.
0: It's beautifully built. I mean, when I, mean, I look at the concrete when I'm swimming up and down, I go, wow, look at the shuttering. It's really gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> because it's done so well, you know, and, and there's accommodation above it. And, and the flats are really really beautiful, actually. Yes. Uh, a couple of friends of mine live up there. And uh, it's it's, you know, so that's a great example. So, you know, actually, Rathmines is a brilliant example of urban living. You know, the walk, you, know, you never have to take a car anywhere. You you know, bicycle, you can walk, everything's available. It's, it's, it's a fantastic place to live, really.
1: So how did you manage to get going again in the Quinn's venture? Are you with people in that?
0: Well, and I approached the developer and I said, look, um, you know, we can, we can make something out of this. And then I sort of explained what we could make. So I had to have the idea, if you like. And and then we went in and sort of cleaned it up so people could come in and see what it might be. Because, you know, when you are going into a smelly old building, it's very hard to see for people who don't do this. But for me, yeah, we sort of cleaned it in a way that we could show people. So then, you know, you can show investors and bankers and stuff like that. But this is what this will be. And you can develop projections and business plans and, you know, and all that kind of thing. So that's... Obviously a lot of work, but that's the nuts and bolts of opening business. You have to do all this background work.
1: Can I ask you about one other thing? I, going back into things of controversy in the past, but I would be interested now on your take on what happened during COVID because you involved in one of the most, almost up there with Golfgate. You were the sort of the business version of Golfgate with the no, Berlin it was much bar.
0: worse for us than Golfgate. I mean, we, we, we had a pub called Berlin on, on, on uh, Dame Street, and we had this brunch. I, in fact, was away at the time. But um, young barman got up and you know danced around with the bottle in his hand. And we've
1: seen was, the videos pouring the drinks. Yeah, down yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Obviously, they were having a great time, but um, there was no breaches of of any of any uh, regulations or guidelines. However, it looked pretty bad, and it upset a lot of my colleagues in the industry, for which I apologise profusely and endlessly. But the state decided that we're going to make example of me and i mean two weeks after actually our little incident the golf gap happened i went oh thank god for that someone they can talk about someone else for once and uh you know we were condemned royally by uh, the trade associations oh and i know them all very well we were condemned by the minister i was furious with because you know they didn't see the footage they would just get them you know and so there was a sense of we lost our license that was ban.
1: a big punishment.
0: Oh, that cost me a, a, a lot, you know, an awful lot. So, um, you know, uh, so that that was that was very cruel, you know. Uh, it wasn't that, that that in my opinion, was extremely unfair.
1: Uh, was that a disproportionate response? Did you appeal it in any way? Did you try and
0: uh, have that overturned? I, I, yeah, again, the court process, the, the judge who was a, in that licensing case didn't grant us the license, and uh, and therefore, and. You were made an example of. We were, yeah. So it cost it cost me uh, the guts of uh, <laughs> more than a million, actually. And uh, again, we hadn't broken any law, and it was a, it was a nice place. It was it was a creative place, actually. It was good fun. So yeah, we got punished very badly by that.
1: And how did you feel about all of that at the time? Being the centre of attention,
0: I, I hated it actually. I mean, but I mean, I mean the, the real story behind that is that Berlin and. A couple of other things i've done over the years had a theater license which is sort of a loophole where if you have a performance in a license in a, in a say a restaurant you can get a what's called a theater license and a theater license entitles you to serve beer and wine and spirits in the same way that a pub can as long as there's some kind of performance now that law like all the other laws i referred to before that you know that used to be you had to sit in a seat and then Dennis desmond took a court case and no you didn't have to sit in a seat or a DJ performance became a valid theatrical performance and in the end I remember a guard saying look I don't care if someone's playing Tiddlywinks there has to be something going on so Berlin had this endless you know DJs and art and painting and all this kind of stuff which is great crap and so it, 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 it was entitled to a theatre licence of course the publicans absolutely hated that because it was the back door to being a pub albeit with entertainment. So when it came to Berlin being on the naughty step, you know the publican said, you know, the deep state said, well, sure so we don't mind as long as you get a pub license, but a pub license requires an application to court, a purchase of a license, which is still 50 grand. And so that was the compromise in the end. And I think, that, I think the publicans are really behind that because they didn't like this loophole. And uh, so they got what they wanted
1: You've certainly had a very full career, haven't you?
0: It's not over yet. <laughs> no, yeah, I have had, yeah, yeah.
1: And how much longer do you want to keep going for?
0: Well, I have no choice because I have, um, like in bankruptcy, you lose your pensions. I had a very boring pension, as a matter of fact, that I paid in from my 20s. So you lose all of that. You lose your savings. You lose any cash. Not that I had any. So you lose, you lose everything. So you really are starting with a zero.
1: At the age of 57.
0: Indeed. But uh, that's that's the deal, isn't it? So I will continue doing what I have always done and I've always enjoyed it, so hopefully I'll still enjoy it, you know.
1: Jay Burke, it's been great having a chat with you. You're remarkable the way you keep bouncing back. And I look forward to seeing you not just when you open Quinn's up, but I'm gonna have a good laugh when I see you in Crow Park at some of the games. <laughs> And that's it for today's Magnified with Matt Cooper. Thank you very much for having listened to Jay Burke. And this podcast was produced in association with Strategic Power Connect. There are lots of others available in the Magnified series if you'd like to dip in and find something that you might be interested in. And if you like it, please recommend to a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts, be it on Apple or Spotify or via the Go Loud app. Until the next time, for me, Matt Cooper. Thank you for joining us.
0: Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect, renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit StrategicPower.co/Connect.
1: Go Loud sounds better with us.